Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with a show for every team in LA and more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? I'm Nara Wang, and in my opinion, it's the best time of year because we're in the midst of March Madness. As a hoops junkie, I'm so glad that for episode 25, I'm going to have a guest who is one of the few people out there who might actually love basketball more than I do. Jackie (laughs) Jamelos was the top girls basketball recruit in America when she signed with USC in 2006 out of St. Mary's High School in Stockton, California. However, she would not play in a game for the women of Troy until February of 2010 due to multiple ACL tears. Despite another torn ACL that would end her collegiate career in December of 2011, Jamelos persevered and embarked on a long professional career that culminated with the Washington Mystics in the WNBA last year. Jackie, it's an honor to have you as a guest on the Everything USC podcast. Well, that was some introduction. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. And of course, if you enjoy listening to the show, please subscribe and rate it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Luminary, TuneIn, and more. Or go to the website Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media at Believe Podcasts. For me, you can find and follow me on Twitter at Nara Wang Sports. That's N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Jackie, let the people know how they can contact, reach out to you, whatever you want to get out there. Let them know. Yeah, the best way is my Instagram. It's Jackie23 and then my Twitter, JackieG underscore 23. Those are my two most used platforms. The Everything USC podcast is brought to you by Bet Online, the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. The Masters is here and Bet Online has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website betonline.ag or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Jackie, we're not breaking any news here because you've already announced publicly that you are retiring from playing basketball professionally, and we're going to dive deeper into all of that and your career path and your future plans as this show goes along. But as a now former pro basketball player and proud USC alum, one of the things you might have more time to do is follow the Trojans sports teams, and so how fun is it to see the men's basketball team reach the Sweet 16 of the NCAA tournament? Yeah, it's been pretty amazing to be able to follow the guys and see how well they've been doing. The Mosley brothers have been incredible throughout the season. The last game against Kansas was super exciting to watch Isaiah and all his three-pointers. And then obviously Evan being the player that he is. I've been following those guys pretty closely. And you know, just the fact that I get to say that my alma mater is doing so well in a sport that's my favorite, obviously. I just take a lot of pride in it, and I'm just so happy for the guys. I know they're well-deserving of it, and Andy Enfield, you know, coming from the Gulf Coast and doing big things there, I think it's just been tremendous what he's been able to do at USC, and I'm super excited to watch the next game against Oregon. I'll be tuned in on Sunday for that, for sure. Definitely. It's going to be a Pac-12 matchup on Sunday against the seventh seed Oregon Ducks. That game's going to be at 6.45 p.m. Pacific time on TBS television-wise and Westwood One Radio nationally. Also, of course, locally on 7.90 a.m. KABC. USC, of course, in the first round took out the 11th seeded Drake Bulldogs 72-56. I didn't think they played particularly great. They were just a much bigger and more athletic team than Drake. They had a double-double out of Evan Mobley, 17-11 and 11 in that one. Shot 50% from the field as a team. Held Drake to just 29.5% from the field. Isaiah had 15 points, 5 boards. Shot 6-7 of seven from the field in that game. 
and Drew Peterson stepped up with a 14-point performance on 5 of 10 shooting. Taj Edey, the Santa Clara transfer, came through with 9 points, 6 boards, and 10 assists in that one, which moved them on to the second round against the third-seeded Kansas Jayhawks, one of the blue bloods in college basketball. And, I mean, you can only say one way. The Trojans absolutely destroyed Kansas. 85-51, the worst tournament loss by Kansas in their long and storied basketball history. SC, 57% shooting, 61% from three. They shot better from three than from the free throw line, 59%, which is amazing. Held Kansas to just 29% field goal shooting. Isaiah stepped up. Huge game for him, 17 points, four out of five from three land, eight boards and four assists. Evan with a ho-hum, 10 points and 13 rebounds, five assists, three blocks. And then Isaiah White stepping up with three of four from the three-point line, finishing with 13 points. And so now, like you said, it's a Pac-12 matchup against the Ducks. They only played once during the regular season, and USC won that game at Galen Center, 72-58 on February 22nd. USC jumped out to a 17-1 lead in that game as Oregon missed their first 12 shots of the game. SC finished with 50% field goal shooting, 10 of 21 from three, never trailed at all, had a 26-point lead early in the second half, and Taj Yidi was the star in that one. He had 24 points, six three-pointers. Drew Peterson had 15 and 11. Evan Mobley actually didn't really have to do much. He had 11 points, five boards, two assists, didn't even have a block in that one, and he's usually good for two or three a game. Ethan Anderson with a 6.7 rebound, 8 assists game as a starter because Isaiah Mobley had to sit that one out with a strained right calf. So I'm looking forward to it. I know you are as well. I just think it's disappointing that we're seeing two Pac-12 teams have to play each other, especially the way the Pac-12 is doing in this tournament so far. I mean, that's always kind of unfortunate when you have to link up in the tournament. But there's also a flip side to that, and it's one of the teams are going to win, and that's representing the Pac-12. So whoever wins, it's still a good representation of our league. But obviously, you know, you want to play someone else and get that experience playing different teams. But may the best Pac-12 team win in advance. Yep, it does guarantee that the Pac-12, which is always so maligned nationally, gets a team into the Elite Eight, and we will definitely be looking forward to that. But I've also got to talk to you about the women's tournament because before these two tournaments started, there was a little bit of controversy because (laughs) the NCAA likes to step into it. And as people who have listened to this podcast know, I am not a big fan of the NCAA or its president, Mark Emmert. So let me just set it up, first of all, that there is no women of Troy in the tournament this year, but six Pac-12 teams are in it. Stanford's the number one overall seed. Arizona, UCLA, Oregon, Oregon State, and Washington State are also in it. And as we record this on a Wednesday afternoon, the tournament is in its second round and games are going on. So there's a lot to talk about there with the games. But beforehand, there was a lot of controversy because videos and pictures came out about the difference in the facilities that were in the setup for the men in Indianapolis versus the women in San Antonio. Oregon's Sedona Prince actually went viral with the video showing a huge ballroom in San Antonio that had a lot of empty space. There was one rack of weights, and that was it. Meanwhile, you saw pictures and videos of the men's weight room stacked, full, perfectly loaded up to do anything you wanted weight-wise. And so I want to get your thoughts on that specific controversy before we get into kind of the other stuff as well. Yeah, I mean, of course I saw it and I was pretty mad right away. Elena Deladon, one of my good friends, she had reposted something. I guess it was the picture of the men's weight room and then the women's weight room. And obviously a huge gap in what was in the weight rooms and the things that were available to the women. And it was just really sad and frustrating. And I think that it spread really quickly. And all the women that play in basketball and that care about the sport kind of made it viral and brought 
you know, national attention to that. Just sad that the NCAA even thought that that would be okay, as if we weren't going to say something. Right. And then the reason being because there wasn't enough space when clearly, you know, there was more than enough space. So it was just really sad. And I was particularly frustrated. I put something on my story and added the NCAA. I wanted to make sure that they get as much backlash for that as they could because it's unacceptable, especially after the huge season that the WNBA had and the impact that they've had on so much social injustice issues. You would just think that they wouldn't dare do something like that. And of course, the NCAA comes out on Friday. The president, Mark Emmert, says it's inexcusable. They make all their apologies. They said it's something that can't happen again, and they're going to do their things to fix it. And yet a couple days later, he tells the Economic Club of Indiana, I have no idea what that even is and why he's talking to them, (laughs) but that the women's weight rooms were actually meant to be exercise rooms, and quote, but once the video's out there, the video's out there, unquote. So it just kind of shows that They are putting out these things to try and make up for it, but they don't really mean it necessarily. And then you see that in some of the other things that they've been called out about on this women's tournament. Coaches like Gino Auriemma of UConn, Tara Vanderveer of Stanford have said, why are the men getting PCR COVID tests and the women are getting antigen tests, which have proven to be less reliable? Why is the signage and the branding so much better at the men's courts and the facilities that they're playing the men's games in? Than the women's games. You have a big March Madness logo on center court for all the men's games. On the women's games, you see something that says NCAA women's basketball. It doesn't even say championship or anything like that. Right. And the game photos and the transcribing of post-game press conferences are available for the men's games. They're not going to be available for the women until the Sweet 16. And they're saying that that's because it's a staffing issue. But, I mean, how can you not think about this kind of stuff and realize it's going to make you look bad. Right. Like I said, it's almost as if they thought that no one was going to speak up and say something because with everything that you just mentioned, obviously something was going to get brought up. Like I said, I'm frustrated. I know a lot of other people are frustrated. I've been seeing things go off on my Instagram about it since the NCAA tournament started. And, you know, everyone's mad. Everyone's upset about it. And I think that if we continue to just bring it to the forefront and we have credible people like Tara and like Gino who speak up, it's going to help matters. And whether it's a half apology or an apology that was taken away later, all that stuff comes to the light and it just shows and represents what the NCAA stands for. And it's not good. So they can halfway apologize as much as they want. But, you know, I think at this point, everyone that's an advocate for women's basketball is not going to keep their mouth closed. And that's the way it should be. And we hope to see changes as this tournament goes along and in future years to kind of close this gap of inequality between the men's tournament and the women's tournament. And again, just some of the excuses that they brought up, like, oh, the planning because of COVID and doing stuff over Zoom. I mean, everyone's doing stuff over Zoom. We're doing this over Zoom, you know, I mean, you can figure out things and how to do things properly. So as for the tournament itself, you're seeing some really good basketball. Stanford's already moved on to the Sweet 16. We're seeing Oregon is playing as we're actually recording this podcast. Arizona and UCLA are going to be playing later. But a huge matchup that's going to happen next weekend in the Sweet 16 between number one seed UConn in the Riverwalk region and the number five seeded Iowa Hawkeyes because you've got two superstar players, Paige Beckers on UConn and Caitlin Clark for Iowa, both freshmen, and they're going to match up for the first time. It's going to be huge. And by the way, I think Paige Beckers reminds me of a young kid who came out of Stockton named Jackie Jamelos. What do you think? Uh, You know, it's funny you say that. Me and my dad were watching her play yesterday. And we saw some similarities as well. Just, you know, her body frame and just how she's built, but kind of her style of play. She has a little flash to her, can shoot the ball, three-point range, mid-range, you know, and she kind of has a smile on her face doing it the whole time. And she's really fun to watch. I've had a lot of fun getting to see her play and see the level where she's at. And then I also watched Clark really thoroughly yesterday for the first time. And I was just as impressed with her. Obviously, she's 
drawn a lot of attention to herself and that program and a lot of their success has come from her. I think the way she plays is just maybe a little bit more poise. She has a lot of control over the game. I loved watching her score in you know multiple ways. She's clearly a leader. She's kind of someone who seems older, like she should be a senior. She should be on her way to the WNBA this summer. That's what it looks like to me, just her presence and her leadership on the court. It's just, you know, it's undeniable. And that's something that I really have admired about her and her game. And it's going to be a lot of fun to see those two match up. Just really excited. I'll be tuned in for sure. Yeah, Clark does play with a maturity that seems beyond her years. I mean, she outscored Kentucky in the first (laughs) half of that game by herself as they beat the Wildcats there. And like you said, Beckers has that flash to her game. I remember when you were recruited to USC, how tremendous that was. And just the reports, obviously, you know, the internet was a little less. Things didn't go as viral as things are now, which is why everyone knows about Paige Beckers because all of her high school highlights were out there for everyone to see online. But for you, I remember hearing the reports, you know, a female Pistol Pete Maravich, you know, (laughs) you averaged 39 points a game in your high school career. I mean, it was just so exciting to hear about your game and what you were going to bring to USC, which is why obviously there was a lot of disappointment with all the injuries and we're going to get into all that. But just speaking in terms of the NCAA tournament directly, you never got to play in the big dance during your collegiate career. You did go to the women's NIT, made it to the championship game in 2011, where you lost to Toledo on their home floor. But was there a disappointment about not making it to the NCAA tournament for you? Yeah, I think that was probably one of the biggest things in my career that I really never got to fulfill. You know, a lot of my friends, they have their stories about the tournament and their tournament runs and being a part of Final Fours and Elite Eights and Sweet Sixteens. And that's definitely something that I wish I would have been able to go through at least one time. I mean, I only was able to play in one full season at USC. And that was the season we decided to do the WNIT, which was, don't get me wrong, it was a good experience. We made it to the championship game, but there's nothing like March Madness in the NCAA tournament. And that is one aspect in my career. I would say probably one of the only things in my career where I could look back and say, you know, I didn't get to do that. I wish I would have known what that felt like. Yeah, you get to hear the stories. You get to see everyone relive those days of their past every March. And so I'm sure, for one, it had to suck that you weren't able to help USC more and maybe get to the NCAA tournament. And also just the fact that then you weren't able to play in your one full season and get in there. But it is always a fun time to watch March Madness, whether it's the men or the women. You just see some great basketball. You see some spirit. And unfortunately, we don't have the full crowds this season with the COVID pandemic Mm -hmm. still going on. But at least there are some people who are getting to see the games in both Indiana and in Texas. And we'll see what the atmosphere is like once we move further along into the tournament as well. Of course, I am joined today on the Everything USC podcast by former Women of Troy basketball player, former WNBA player, Jackie Jamelos. We are, of course, on the Believe Podcast Network, which is where you can find the show on Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media at Believe Podcasts, or go to wherever you get your favorite podcast, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Luminary, or TuneIn, subscribe and rate it. For me, I am on Twitter. You can catch me there, talk USC sports or anything else at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Jackie, let the listeners know how they can reach out to you. Best way to reach out to me is on my Instagram platform. It's Jackie23 and my Twitter account, and that's Jackie G underscore 23. This is Adrian Branch, ESPN College Basketball Analyst, and you're listening to the Everything USC Podcast with Nara Wang on the Believe Podcast Network. And so, Jackie, let's now go into your young basketball playing career. First of all, of course, you were a 2006 McDonald's High School All-American coming out of Stockton, California, St. Mary's High School. 
but you tore your ACL in your final high school game, so you weren't able to actually play in the McDonald's All-American game. And in that game, you were supposed to play with Morgan Medlock out of Norbon High School, who was also going to go to USC. Two USC commits out of that class to join Haley Dunham out of Windward School here in LA. And also Erica Hughes, current USC women's associate basketball coach, was part of that incoming 2006 class. SC was coming off of two straight NCAA tournament appearances under coach Mark Track in his first stint as the head man for USC women's basketball. And so everyone just thought, all right, you're going to redshirt a year, rehab from the ACL, and come back. But that just wasn't the case. I'll let you kind of take me through the history of what happened, starting with the high school game where you tore your ACL, and then what happened going forward at the beginning of your SC career. So it all started the last game of my senior year in high school, playoff game. And it was two weeks, more or less, before the McDonald's All-American game. I tore my ACL and I was, you know, in about a two-week span, I was told that I tore my ACL, that I couldn't play in the McDonald's All-American game, and that I was going to have to redshirt my first year at USC. So for me, that first year and that first tear was super devastating because it was the first time basketball had been taken away from me. You know, I had grown up since I was seven years old playing basketball from the start of the day to the end of the day. And that's everything that I knew. My dad instilled a really strong work ethic in me at a young age. And I think that that kind of carried with me throughout the years. And it absolutely needed to because after that first tear, I then tore my ACL four more times during my career at USC. I rehabbed that first year. I gained a lot of weight. I wasn't taking care of my body in the way that I should have because my body wasn't used to not playing. So it was really the first time that I hadn't played. So I was still with the same eating habits. So I gained a lot of weight. I don't think I took my rehab as serious as I should have. And that was on me. I just wanted to play basketball. I wanted to be on the court. I wanted to shoot. I wanted to practice. I wanted to do everything I could to be on the court. But I was too young to really know what that took because it's such a terrible injury and it's such a hard injury to come back from. So if you don't do it the right way, your body's going to take a toll. And, you know, I would say that's probably why I, I retore my ACL on that same leg the following year. So that would have been my sophomore year. So it was my freshman, sophomore, preseason going into that sophomore year is when I retore that in practice. And then I did the same thing. I redid my rehab. I did a lot better this time around, starting to understand that, you know, a lot has to be put into it and it couldn't just be, oh, I want to get on the court. Let me just go shoot and I'll be fine. And my knee will heal itself. And I was, I was surrounded with an amazing coaching staff, support system, the physical trainers, all the doctors that I saw. Everyone was elite. Everyone was great at USC. I was taken care of completely. And, you know, that the next time I tore my ACL was on the other knee. So I don't know if it was overcompensation. I don't know what the actual situation was. But at that point, they were saying, maybe your body's just not made to play basketball. Maybe it's just not a thing that you should continue to do. This is the third time you tore your ACL, you know, start thinking about other things. And I obviously didn't take no for an answer. I rehabbed again. I tried to get through that third tear. And then about eight months into my rehab, John Meyer, who was my physical therapist at USC, who I absolutely love. And I credit him for a lot because without him, I wouldn't have been able to make it. So we found out that my graft didn't take. So they were using an allograft at the time, which is someone else's body part. And they were using that as my ACL. So sometimes in very rare cases, your body rejects the graft and it kind of just dissolves in your knee. So of course, my luck, that's what happened. So I rehabbed for about eight months. I was getting ready to get cleared. And then we found out that I just didn't have an ACL. So they had to redo the surgery, which was devastating. And my friends were there visiting me at the time. Tina Charles, she went to UConn. She's a big WNBA star now. So she was actually with me when I got the news. And that's, you know, something that her and I kind of carry with us forever because 
that was a really down time for me in my basketball career. So it was just really weird that she was there at that specific time. And she ended up taking me to the hospital and picking me up from my surgery. So that's just like a special bond that her and I share. And we were supposed to go to UConn together. But yeah, so I did that rehab again. Obviously, each year I was getting better and better with my rehab. I was more focused every year. I didn't really lose my fight and my will and my passion. I just wanted to prove that I could still do it and still come back from the injury and still prove that I can make it into the WNBA. I wanted to do that for myself. And, you know, I'm sure the competitive side in me wanted to do it to prove everyone wrong and show everyone that I could do it. After that fourth surgery, Michael Cooper was the new head coach and I stayed healthy for about a year and a half. I played half of what would have been my senior year. And then that next fifth year, I played that full season, went to the USA basketball tryouts that summer. I made the USA team. We won a gold medal. And then I came back for my sixth year. And then a few months into the season, I retore my ACL on the left knee for the third time in that knee, five times total. And that was, you know, a few months before the WNBA draft. So I didn't think I was going to get drafted. And then fast forward, I did get drafted. And that's kind of why I decided to hold on to my dream. And that's really the reason why I said, okay, after this fifth tear, this is what I'm holding on to. This is what I'm going to fight for. And it kind of gave me a reason to be okay in my head to keep going. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, just an amazing work of perseverance, resilience, all of those adjectives that you want to use about someone who continues to pursue a dream in spite of all the odds going against them. And before we move on to the professional career, you brought up something that I was going to bring up, the fact that you were originally committed to go to UConn and play for Gino Oriema, play with your friend Tina Charles there, but... You switched it to USC, which was another reason I was so excited about you coming to USC was that, hey, we're stealing recruits away from UConn. We're going to (laughs) build this back up to the, you know, Cheryl Miller, Lisa Leslie days. I mean, when I started school, we had Tina Thompson. So we had some stars in USC's past and you were going to be the great guard. I know Diana Taurasi was one of your heroes growing up and that was the type of player you were just like in the line now that we talk about Paige Beckers being that type of player. So what was the switch that made you decide to go to USC and turn down the big UConn Huskies? Well, so when I was 15, I think I was the youngest recruit to ever make a verbal commitment to UConn. 15 years old is really young and probably, well, too young to make decisions like that. But The whole situation happened when Gino called me and he was on a boat with Diana, Sue, and Swin, and they were just on some yacht. Just casual-like, just casual-like. Just a casual phone call. I'm 15 years old. You know, I'm obsessed with UConn women's basketball, obsessed with Diana Taurasi. Yeah, let's just have a conversation with this group of people and just pretend like it's not that big a deal. I was sweating as I was talking to them. I was in my parents' room, just pacing back and forth. I locked myself in their room. I made them stay outside in the living room. And I was having this conversation with Gino and company. (laughs) And, you know, just a time in my career that I'm never going to forget because that moment of saying to Gino, yeah, I want to come to your school. I want to accept the offer. I want to be the best player in the country. I want to be the next Diana Taurasi because that's what they were kind of putting in my ear. And I want to win a national championship. You know, those were all the things that I wanted as a little girl. So it was a no brainer for me at that stage in my career. But then when reality set in, it got closer to the time to leave for UConn. I started thinking a little bit more realistic, like, wow, you know, my parents aren't going to get to be at any of my games. My dad and my mom, they've been to every practice since I was a little girl. I just had the greatest support system growing up and I created so many memories with my parents and my sister. And we just built so much here. And the thought of them not being around me or me not having access to them really started to scare me. So I made a bold move to kind of go against my verbal commitment and just say to Gino, I'm not going to come. I'm going to stay closer to home. I feel more comfortable in that way. And, you know, that was a really bold move of me. I know that made a lot of headlines and 
it sure made Gino upset. He called me once and the voicemail had to cut off because it was too long. So then he called a second time to leave another voicemail. And a couple of things that he said that I remember vividly was, you'll never be the player Diana was. You're a selfish individual. You better pray whatever school you go to doesn't play the University of Connecticut because we're going to kick your ass. (laughs) Wow. You know, just things that really stuck out to me and kind of just stuck with me forever. But it's funny how things work out. When I made the Chicago Sky in 2015, I saw him when we played Connecticut and he stopped me and he was like, oh, wow, Like I didn't know you were this tall. Were you this tall in high school? And I was like, yeah, I was probably this tall. I don't think I grew much since high school. I think I was pretty much six feet for a long time. And he was just like, I just want you to know I'm so proud of you. I know things you know, didn't work out with us. And I'm sorry how your career panned out at USC with all of your injuries. But I'm very proud of you and what you've overcome. And he was very, very nice to me. And probably because he won like four or five national championships from that moment. <laughs> so <laughs> he could care less. But it was just really, really nice to hear him say that to me and just be so kind about it after everything that happened. And what specifically about USC made you become a member of the Women of Troy? The coaching staff. I remember walking into Heritage Hall and they didn't know I was coming. My parents and I decided to go to LA because we wanted to show up on UCLA and USC's campus because I wanted to stay in California. So I knew my options were those two schools or Cal. Stanford was not an option. I was not a good enough student to go there. (laughs) Even though Tara uh, recruited me pretty hard, but it just, the writing was on the wall. I didn't have good enough grades at the time to go to to Stanford. And it wasn't, it just wasn't my style. So, you know, I kind of just popped up at all these schools and was just like, hey, my name's Jackie Jamalis. I just wanted to know if I could talk to the women's basketball staff. And at the time, Kai Felton, she didn't know who I was. She was our third assistant at the time. And she walks in to the office and goes, hey, there's a girl named Jackie Jamelis that's here. She's here with her mom. She wants to talk to the staff and walk around campus. And I guess you know, Coach Track always reminds me of this moment where he just started like hyperventilating and ran out <laughs> just like, how do you not know who Jackie Jamelis is? You know, he was so upset with Kai and him and Jody and Derek just came running out and From that moment on, I just knew I wanted to be with USC because I had such a great connection with that staff. And really recruiting is such a big part of everything and the success of a team. And the way they recruited me and just how they were as people and what they showed throughout my time at USC, it all just, it made sense. And they never sugarcoated anything. They didn't show to be one way and then ended up being another way. They were genuine from the jump. And I just developed such a great, strong relationship with them. And then obviously the team at the time, Shea Murphy, Jamie Hagia, Chloe Kerr, you know, just a bunch of great players and great people. Jamie Fun, yeah, I, I'm forgetting a lot. Markeisha Lee, just a lot of players. They were just great people, obviously great players. Camille Lenore. And I just wanted to be a part of it. I loved their energy. I loved the Trojan family atmosphere. I just wanted to be a part of that program. And I felt like, I really truly felt like we were going to bring a national championship back to SC at the time. Believe me, I was thinking that too. I thought the glory days were coming back for the women of Troy. And it's just such a disappointment of what happened. Do you think, had you come back healthy? I mean, this is the biggest, you know, hypothetical what if there is. But had you come back healthy right away, what do you think USC could have done during your time there? Well, I think it was more so could I have came into SC without having that injury period and just going straight into my freshman season at SC. And I think about that all the time. Yeah. What might that have looked like? We had the number one recruiting class in the country, Morgan Medlock, Haley Dunham, Erica Hughes. And then you add that to Camille Lenore and Bryn Cameron and all the other greats that were there. We could have really done something special. and. We had a great coaching staff, Mark Track, who came full circle and who's back there now. You know, they should have never got rid of him, in my opinion, in the first place. You know, I'll stand by that forever. But I mean, he to me was just, he was like a father figure. I thought that his basketball IQ was just out of this world. I thought that he knew how to 
get our group going. And, you know, it was just, we just had so many injuries and that's, yeah, you can look at that as an excuse, but it was just a number of things that got in the way of something that could have been so great. And you wonder if those injuries weren't there, what noise would we have made? And I think we would have made a huge run and I would have had that NCAA tournament experience probably not once, but four times. So I can't help but think that, you know, if I was healthy and I was coming off that momentum as being the number one high school player in the country and, you know, rolling right into the college season, it would have just been different. Yeah. Always the game of what if. That's what happens with injuries. But like you said, you were still drafted in the WNBA in the third round in 2012 by the Minnesota Lynx, despite the fact that you had again torn your left ACL in your final season at USC. So after being drafted by the Lynx, what are your thoughts heading into trying to make it in the WNBA? Yeah, so like I said earlier, I needed something to hold on to in order to continue to play after that fifth tear because that one broke me. I mean, they all broke me in some way, but that one, I didn't feel a purpose anymore. And Michael Cooper kept telling me, you know, you might get drafted. I know a lot of people. There's a lot of people that like you. Just just hold on, you know, keep holding on. And I listened to that, but only to an extent. I didn't know it was going to happen. And then when my name was called in the third round, 31st overall pick to Minnesota, it was like, oh my gosh, like God or whoever wants me to do this. They want to see me try and make this happen. So I just felt like it was my time to put everything into it one last time to try and make the roster. So I completely changed everything. I got a new physical therapist because I needed something new. It wasn't because John wasn't amazing. He was the greatest, but I had graduated from USC. So I needed a change. I needed to go outside and do something different for my body because clearly something needed to change. I kept getting the same results. So I seeked a guy named Fabrice Gautier. Actually, my agent was connected with him. And he was the French national team men's physical therapist. So he was seeing Tony Parker, Boris Dia, all those guys that are in the NBA from the French national team. And he came to Beverly Hills and started a practice there. If you look him up now, I mean, he's like a famous physiotherapist, osteopath. He's worked with every NBA player that you can imagine. And I got him when he was in his early stages and he heard about my story and he was like, I want to work with her. I want to be the doctor that fixes her and, you know, allows her to continue to play. So he took me on kind of as a project because he thought it was pretty incredible. And he knew that I was trying to work toward being in the WNBA. So he wanted to do what he could to help me with his expertise. And we changed everything about my physical therapy. We broke down exactly why he thought I was tearing my ACL, what movements in my knees that were causing me to tear my ACL. We changed my nutrition. My diet was so intense and so just different and insane compared to what it was in college. He had a mental coach in his facility. So I was seeing her. I was seeing a guy named Barents who's been massaging, deep tissue massaging Kobe for his entire basketball career. So I had just an unlimited amount of resources. And that's why I always say you get what you put in. And if you have those resources, if you put that in, like you can come back and you can be strong because it's just when you have that kind of support, it's like almost impossible not to. And Fabrice was pushing me. Like he was mentally, physically pushing me to just my maximum capacity. And my legs got so strong and my knee got so strong. Both my knees got so strong where they were just kind of like unbreakable after him. And I never stopped doing his rehab because I knew that that's why I was still playing. So it's kind of like a miracle in a sense. But I still didn't make the team in Minnesota, but that didn't have anything to do with my health. It was because I hadn't really played in so many years. I got that one season at SC, but in the last like five years, I hadn't really had a lot of game experience. And then I was coming off that last year, not having played a game for a year. So it was like, I just needed more basketball experience and I just needed to get more comfortable on the court. So after not making it with Minnesota, did you decide right away to pursue options in Europe? How did that all come about? 
Yeah, so I had an amazing agent, Allison Gaylor. She started her agency, I guess, like her own company when she was 22. So I was actually her first basketball client. She had Lisa Leslie, but Lisa had already stopped playing basketball. So I was her first active client. And she's from LA. And her uncle actually has represented Magic Johnson for the last 25 years in his playing career and then after. So she was really well connected, just an amazing, amazing agent. And she's grown to be one of the best in the game now. But she's the reason why I got into playing overseas. And someone reached out to her in Greece. And it was just perfect because Greece did their homework. They knew that I had a Greek dad and they knew that my dad played in Greece. So they figured, well, she's one of you know the better Greeks, period. So let's try and get her a passport. So Panathinaikos, one of the biggest clubs in Greece, reached out to me and my contract was contingent on if they could get me my passport in time for the season or not. Because going to Greece would mean with my Greek passport, I would be a Greek player and I wouldn't count as an American. So it's very valuable. And I credit that team a lot because having that European passport throughout my career really made things great over there for me. And it was just amazing because my dad is from Greece and he's Greek and he played there. He was a basketball player. So just having my first season be in that country was just really special. And then being able to obtain my Greek passport was just icing on the cake. Yeah, a lot of people may not be aware of the fact that a lot of those teams overseas have a cap on how many foreign players are allowed to be on a team, especially from America. And so getting a passport from a country, like you see it with players getting a Russian passport, like Becky Hammond, who's now the assistant coach with the San Antonio Spurs during her playing career over in Russia, she ended up playing for the Russian national team because she got a Russian citizenship in time Mm -hmm. to be able to play for them. And I remember she caught a lot of grief for that. And I always had to defend her because it's like, hey, she's getting ignored for some reason by Team USA. And she just wants to play in the Olympics. And this was the way to do it. I mean, it was stupid that she wasn't on the Team USA roster anyway. But this was a way for her to play in the Olympics and fulfill one of her dreams. So she did what she had to do. And so you were able to get that Greek passport, like you said, which eases things to play in Europe. And yet... You played for multiple teams in Europe. Why was that? Why were you with a lot of different teams in Italy, Spain, Greece, instead of staying with one team? It's a little different of a situation overseas. As an American, even though I was technically a European player, you don't usually sign more than a one-season contract. So everything is pretty much one year. And then you go to the next team because more than likely the next team is going to offer you more money. It's a rare thing when Americans or foreigners sign more than a one-year contract because every year you kind of gain more value. So I started off in Greece and then I made a step up in my career and went to Italy, one of the kind of mid-level teams in Italy. And then from there, I was recognized in the EuroLeague, which is the best league in Europe. So I played for a EuroLeague team in Spain. It was the best team in Spain. We won the Spanish championship that year. And then I went to another team in Italy, a step above my old team in Italy, played there for two years. So I ended up staying in Naples for two years. Very unique situation and team. I loved it there. I wanted to go back again. They wanted me back again. And then my ultimate dream in Europe was to play for Skio. It was the best team in Italy for so many years. Also a EuroLeague contender every single year for the past 15 years. Just one of the teams that you really want to get to if you're playing in Europe. So I got a contract there and that was the highlight of my European career. After that season, I got an offer to play in Olympiakos, which is the rival of Panathinaikos. And I just felt it was a perfect time in my career to go back to Greece because I played with the national team a couple of times and I loved it so much there, probably a little biased, but it was just time for me to go back there and play there as a Greek player. They were also playing in the Euro Cup, Euro League. So that was another reason why I wanted to go because the team was good. 
they were competitive and they were playing in a European championship. And that ended up being my best season overseas. And that's ultimately how I got my contract with the Connecticut Sun last summer for the bubble. Definitely a huge journey for you. And I want to take it back to 2015 when you finally did make your WNBA debut with the Chicago Sky. You played 17 games for them in that season. What was it at that point that made you feel like you were ready to come back to the States and try and make the WNBA? I think that I had pretty much prepared myself all those years that I put in in Europe. That is to prepare myself and get myself ready for the WNBA, which is the best league in the world. And that was a dream of mine. That was a goal of mine. And I was playing to obtain that goal. I was playing because that's the level I wanted to get back at. I wanted to get back on that elite stage. So I was playing overseas so that I could get that recognition and get that opportunity and get that chance. I had been cut by a number of teams in the WNBA, but in 2015, I finally stuck. And yeah, it's credit to myself, but also credit to a coach that believed in me. And Pokey Chapman really just believed in me and gave me confidence and made me feel like I belonged in that league and told me that every day I was there. Even though I didn't play a lot, I still felt that confidence from her and I knew she wanted me on that roster. So it was just such a great situation to come into. And I was finally living my dream and finally putting on that WMA jersey, not just in a preseason game, not just in a training camp spot, but a real player on the team. And preseason, you know, she gave 12 keys to 12 players and I was the last person to get my key. So it was just, you know, I have that key framed here in my room. And that was, you know, that was the key to my first WNBA job. And that was just a remarkable experience for me. And then, of course, you did return in 2020 with the Connecticut Sun, who then let you go. But then you finished it off with 12 games in the bubble down there in Florida with the Washington Mystics. Was there any disappointment in the gap between making it to the WNBA in 2015 with Chicago and then not being able to come back until 2020? Yeah, I mean, there was some disappointment, but just also so much happiness and like accomplishment overseas. And I really found my niche over there in Europe. I kind of established myself as one of the better European players. And that league has grown, the Euro League, the Euro Cup. Every WNBA player plays in those leagues. So it's, I felt really happy and really good about things because, you know, I just found my niche. I felt like the WNBA was just icing on the cake and just kind of that, like, I guess, quote unquote clout. And obviously, a league that I've always been very, very fond of and always dreamed of being in. So I wasn't pushing the issue like I was before 2015. I was just kind of letting it come to me. And if it came to me, great. If it didn't, you know, that was okay. But then in 2020, when Connecticut basically said, we want you on the team, it's going to be a unique season. There's no training camp. So that just meant I was on the team. And I think that a lot of that had to do with my experience overseas, just my experience with basketball in general. I think that that helped me secure that spot and them have enough faith in me to just bring me in as a player on the roster. You mentioned your time in Europe being so great for you. You were one of the most popular players overseas. What were some of your favorite experiences over there? Just the game atmosphere, honestly. It's one of a kind, especially playing in Greece. The Greeks are crazy and the fans are just, they're nuts. Like my first game over there, they were lighting off torches and (laughs) the whole gym was just full of smoke. We had to stop the game. They were trying to air it out. You know, people smoking cigarettes in the stands, you know, just a lot of chaos going on, but you'll never really get that sort of passion in a fan base here. It's just different. So I think that I'll carry those experiences with me forever because they're just one of a kind, the fanatics over there. It's just, it's on a different level. And then just, you know, being able to experience all the cultures. I loved Italy, obviously Greece and Spain and Turkey. There's so many different cultures and ways of living. I really loved learning the mindsets of all the local players and just how they thought about basketball, how they thought outside of basketball and just learning their tendencies and 
why they do things and what they were taught. I just always found myself really indulging in the cultures and trying to understand them as people because I'm in their country. So I really wanted to respect them in that sense. So I just, I really loved my experience over there. And I always found myself calling it home when I was in different places. Yeah, I have some experience as well. I worked on NFL Europe, so I got to live for a few months in a couple of years in Amsterdam, and the games were in Germany and Amsterdam, so I got to experience a little bit of that. And you do have a good time trying to get used to the local culture. I loved walking the streets of Amsterdam. It's such a great walking city and just getting involved with what's going on in a different part of the world that a lot of Americans, you know, only get to read about. So I totally feel you on that as well. And so like you said, you had made it to the WNBA in 2015. You had a successful career going on in Europe and you weren't necessarily pushing it. But do you feel that you needed to make that comeback in 2020 to WNBA or was your career going to be fine if you hadn't made it back? That definitely made things better and that made me feel like it was okay to be done you know I was 32 and six days ago is when I announced my retirement and if I wouldn't have had that 2020 bubble experience would I have felt okay or would I have felt fulfilled probably not so I think that that was I mean it was just special for so many different reasons obviously being a part of that league and being one of the top 144 players in the world. But then, you know, everything that we stood for in that bubble, you know, the fight against social injustice and all the different things that we were a part of. And my team in particular, the Jacob Blake incident was just, you know, absolutely incredible being a part of that and being able to experience those moments with that group of people and everyone on the same page. And there wasn't one person that, you know, was trying to not do what everyone was trying to do. And it was just, how do you get 144 girls to be on the same page and all fight for something? So it was, it was incredible. And that was what really set it off for me, not only being in the league as a basketball player, but just more than a basketball player. And you know, I can leave on such a good note, on such a high note, and feel good about myself. It truly was a strange and crazy time in our country's history, and the WNBA players really played a huge part in the social justice movement by what you were all doing in the bubble. And so while you're there in that bubble, and having to deal with, you know, all the stuff that goes on with the restrictions just to be able to play basketball and knowing what's going on outside, how does it weigh on you to try and focus on playing basketball? I mean, that was one of the biggest things for us as a group, especially referring to the Jacob Blake incident that happened during the season. Washington, our team decided to come out for the game instead of playing the game, but we wore shirts that said Jacob Blake on the front and then they had seven bullet holes on the back. And that picture in that moment kind of went viral. And I think that after that night of the collaboration of all the teams in the bubble, we all had a big group meeting. And just imagine, you know, 144 girls sitting in one kind of cafeteria-like room and all of us trying to say our opinions and discuss what we want to do moving forward with the season. And it was just something that I can't explain. You had to be there to really feel it. But after that night of emotion and everything that had played into our decision and what we wanted to do, it was hard to come back and play. It was hard to kind of pick ourselves back up and just say, okay, yeah, we decided not to play in our game tonight, but are we going to play in our next game in two days? So we all had to really, really push ourselves and pull ourselves out of a hole. The next day at practice, it was really light. Coach T was such a leader in that entire movement. He was so amazing. He backed us for anything we wanted to do. And we came into practice that next day and he said, I understand what you girls are going through and how you guys are feeling. And basketball is probably the least of your worries. Let's just walk through tomorrow's 
team we play. Let's just walk through their plays and let's get out of here. And you guys go back and we'll see you at shoot around tomorrow. So he gave us that next day to kind of just do what we had to do, get out of there, refocus, come in the next day. And we ended up winning the game the next day. And I think it's because a lot of us were angered and emotional by everything and just wanted to take it out on the court. So it ended up fueling us in a good way versus fueling us in a bad way. But we just needed, you know, like 24 hours to kind of regroup and regather. You are listening to the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. I'm your host, Nara Wang. My guest today in episode 25 is Jackie Jamelos, former women's basketball player for the USC Women of Troy, also played in the WNBA and overseas in Europe for many years. Of course, if you enjoy this show, you can find it on all of your favorite podcast directories, iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Luminary, TuneIn, and more. Please subscribe and rate the show or go to the website Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media at Believe Podcast. For me, I'm on Twitter. Catch me there at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports, Jackie let the people know how they can reach out to you, whether it's social media or anything else. Yeah, my social media Instagram account, you can follow me at Jackie23. And then my Twitter account, you can follow me at JackieG underscore 23. The Everything USC podcast is brought to you by Kanan. Have you ever had sunglasses that failed to block the glare or would break or scratch easily? I know I have. It's time to make your outdoor experiences better with Kanan. Kanan sunglasses are made exclusively with polarized lenses for optimal clarity. They're made with Japanese optics that make their lenses clearer, lighter, and stronger. And Italian handcrafted frames that are impossible to scratch. Use the exclusive code KananCast15 at Kanan.com to receive 15% off on your first pair. That's K-A-E-N-O-N-C-A-S-T-1-5. Kanan, clearly better. And as we've mentioned a couple of times during this show, Jackie Jamelos has decided to finally retire from playing basketball. What led to making that decision now? I think it was just time. I felt like it was a really perfect time in my career to kind of just regroup and say bye to the game playing anyways. And I had a great season in the WNBA last summer. And then that previous year, I had my best overseas season with Olympiacos. So I had really been playing the best basketball of my professional career no more than a year ago. And after that WNBA season, there was just a lot of wear and tear on both knees, but in particular, my left knee. and it gets harder as the years go on. I went to Turkey and I tried to kind of fight through the pain, but it just got to a point where I didn't feel like having to go to practice and then saying, okay, I need to go to the supermarket, but I didn't want to go walk around just to go get food from the supermarket. So it was like, I just wanted to leave on a note where I could walk away from the game and not feel like I couldn't walk away from it. And it was just time and my body was telling me it was time and I felt good in my mind. And I think I prepared myself to figure out what my next move is going to be. And I had really been focusing on that this last year because I knew that time was coming soon. Could my heart play until I'm 50? Absolutely. I wish I kind of had the body like Diana Taurasi where she's you know, somewhat injury-free a majority of her career. More power to her. That's absolutely amazing. But My road is a little different, but I'm definitely happy about everything, and I feel good with my decision. And when you say literally, I want to walk away, you mean literally walk away with all the (laughs) knee injuries that you've had, but obviously you love the game so much, you work so hard. How tough was that decision? Was it an agonizing decision? How long did it take for you to come to the realization that, yeah, it's got to be the time? No, it was extremely hard. I mean, I had been fighting myself. I think I did everything in my power to kind of mask the pain in my left knee. After the WNBA season, I had a scope 
And then after the scope, I went to Germany to get these very special injections that are not FDA approved here in America. And then I went to Turkey and I tried to play there, but I couldn't play without cortisone. And I had like three cortisone shots in two and a half months and it was ridiculous. It's way too much. And then from Turkey, I left my season there, my team there, and I went to Greece to do a stem cell surgery to see if stem cells could help. But at the end of it, I felt like I did everything that I could. I put everything into it. And it was just my body was telling me this time that it's time. So I went through a period of like two months just trying to fight it and trying to mask it a little bit longer and get through it one or two more years. But I just didn't want to jeopardize the future of my life. And now that I stopped playing, my knee feels better than ever. And I feel like a normal person. I don't have pain when I walk. My knee doesn't flare up when I walk. I'm able to work out and it not flare up because I'm not putting that pressure and that pounding on it and cutting and you know everything that basketball does to your knees. So I'm in a good place. It was hard, but I'm in a good place and I'm happy. So let's talk about the future for Jackie Jamelos. Basketball has been such a big part of your life. Are you planning to stay involved with it in some way? Oh, 100%. There's nothing that's going to get me away from this game. I don't know if that's going to be in coaching. I don't know if that's going to be in basketball ops, if that's going to be on the business side. There's things I know that I don't want to do. So that kind of leaves the door open for things that I would want to do. But it's going to be maybe a little trial and error for me in the beginning. But I'm definitely open to some coaching. I think I'd be a good recruiter. And just, you know, my experience, all the experience that I've had throughout the years, I think I have a lot to give in that sense. So definitely not closing the doors to coaching, but I, in some way, shape or form, will be in women's basketball or men's basketball in basketball period. And what else do you want to do with your future? I know you have your own clothing line called Overcome, a very apt name for (laughs) all of the things that you've had to overcome in your life and career. So obviously there's that, like you brought up, you were at the forefront of the social issues that were going on, the fight for social justice in the bubble with the WNBA. Is that something you'd like to continue with there? I mean, what else are you looking forward to with your future? Yeah, I mean, my clothing line has been a lot of fun. It's been about three years now of doing that. And it started off as just something I always wanted to do. And you know, I didn't see a future in it. But as time kind of went on, and people were actually really liking it, and it kind of became a part of me, it was, I mean, obviously, it was a part of me, but people were associating me with having a clothing line. And I thought, well, geez, you know, maybe this is something that I could continue to keep doing and see where it goes. So I'm definitely not going to stop the clothing line, I want to keep doing it. Also partnering with Power Forward, They're a platform in sports where they kind of help athletes with their clothing lines and use their platform and collaborate and do all the printing and the shipping and all of that. So being able to partner with them has been really cool because they've got a number of great athletes, both NBA and WNBA players. So, you know, things hopefully will continue to progress in that area and any way that I can stay involved in the WNBA and their social injustice moves going forward, you know, I hope that I will be included in those things. I think just working for that league or doing something with that league is something that I am very open to because I'm so passionate about it. And, you know, I've been watching it and following it since 96 when it first started. So being able to serve the league in a different way, not as a player, would be another dream of mine, the next dream of mine, I guess. And finally, before I let you go, This might be a tough question to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. In the end, after all the things that you've gone through, the path that your life, your career has taken, how do you want people to remember Jackie Jamelos on and off the court? Yeah, I think for me, I always wanted to leave my mark and, you know, not just another good basketball player, but someone who was a good person and that was able to inspire other players. I think that I'm kind of looked at as, you know, the girl with all the ACL injuries that still was able to play in the WNBA. And that to me means more than, you know, actually making the WNBA. If my story can help other people 
help inspire them, help get them through anything that they're going through injury wise. That means the world to me. And I've had a lot of people say that that was the case. And that just does something to my heart and my insides that, okay, this was all worth it. Everything that I went through and everything that happened was definitely worth it. And I just hope to be remembered as uh, you know a good person, someone who is resilient and someone who is an example of perseverance. And if I can leave that, and if I left that, that's, that means more to me than anything that, you know, I was ever able to do. That's well said. And Jackie, again, thank you so much for joining me on the Everything USC podcast today. It was great to get a chance to talk to you and go through your entire career. And again, an inspiration to so many people with everything you've battled through in your life. Well, thank you. It was an absolute pleasure to be on here. And I appreciate everything. Thank you, Nara. So for my guest, Jackie Jamelos, I'm Nara Wang. Thanks for joining us for episode 25 of the Everything USC podcast presented by Bet Online on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with the show for every team in LA and so much more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? And as always, I end every show with a fight on. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.